Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice. To enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's National Stroke Foundation and sponsored by Allegan. Welcome to the very first Enable Me podcast. My name is Chris Lassig, I'm the content writer on the website enableme.org.au and I am extremely excited that we are taking Enable Me into a different dimension. Now, for this first podcast, we thought we wouldn't muck around and instead we'd talk about the number one topic that stroke survivors ask us about, which is neuroplasticity. For a long time, scientists believed and patients were told that the brain couldn't change. Once function was lost, it was gone forever. But in recent years, that view has changed with the growing realisation that the brain continues to develop all our lives. This concept of neuroplasticity came to popular attention through Norman Deutsch's best-selling book, The Brain That Changes Itself. Now, in this book, Dr. Deutsch tells some remarkable stories about stroke survivors relearning to walk, move their arms, speak, all through neuroplasticity. So it's no wonder then that many stroke survivors want to know how to do this themselves. How can they take advantage of their brain's amazing potential? But there's still a lot of confusion about what it actually entails, what to expect, or even who can help you with it. Now, to get to the bottom of this, we are going to speak to a number of people with direct knowledge and experience of neuroplasticity. These include Dr. Michelle McDonnell, who is a physiotherapist and researcher who studies how the latest developments in neuroscience can be used in stroke rehabilitation. We have Karen Bailey, a stroke survivor who's participated in a trial of therapy to restore sensation and who's actually seen neuroplastic changes on her brain scans. And Simone Russell, who's an occupational therapist, and she's one of the health professionals that answers your questions on the National Stroke Foundation's stroke line. First up, though, to explain what neuroplasticity is and how it's possible to change your brain, we have Dr. Lavinia Codd, a neuroscientist from the Queensland Brain Institute. Thank you for talking to us, Lavinia. Hi. Now, I should point out that you're not just any old neuroscientist, if there is such a thing as any old neuroscientist. (laughs) You're actually a stroke survivor yourself. Can you tell us what happened? Sure. Uh, Well, I'd had a headache for a couple of days. It was a fairly mild headache, uh, so it didn't prevent me from going to the work function that my husband was uh, attending. It was actually a ball, and right at the beginning of that evening, somebody made an announcement, and there were some uh, bright flashing lights as part of that announcement, and that's when I had a stroke. So I felt immediately fairly weak, but I didn't actually collapse. Uh, I had trouble reading the menu and I didn't realise it at the time but I'd lost my entire left field of vision and when my husband held up fingers for me to count I couldn't count them unless I touched them. So we knew that something was fairly wrong and we left immediately and went straight to the hospital. Unfortunately for various reasons, probably because I was walking and talking and because of my age, they misdiagnosed me as just having a migraine, gave me vasoconstrictors and sent me home. It wasn't until a few days later that we went back to hospital where, we, where they diagnosed me correctly as having had a stroke. So the parts of my brain that were affected were my occipital lobe, my medial, medial temporal lobe and my hippocampus, all on the right hemisphere. I've lost my vision on the left and I have problems with uh, learning and memory and with spatial navigation. And in addition to this, though, you have completed a PhD in neuroscience. Now, yes. Was it your stroke that got you interested in neuroscience? Oh, definitely. So I'd, I had been a chartered accountant before uh, I had children, but I wanted a career change. So I went back to uni and I was partway through the first year of a science degree when I had the stroke. So initially I'd been interested in plant biology and I was still doing the general first year subjects. I took a year off uni and my neuropsychologist, Andrew McAllister, was instrumental in convincing me to go back to uni. So I basically went back as a form of therapy and I continued on with a sort of a general um, science degree. But as I progressed, I did some psychology subjects and then I learned about neuroscience. 
And that's when I was asked to um, enter the advanced uh, science program, uh, studies program in science. And as part of that, we had to find a mentor. And that's when I had a really good look at the different professors at the University of Queensland. And I found out about Professor Perry Bartlett and the work that he was doing at the Queensland Brain Institute, which just sounded totally amazing. As you mentioned, most stroke survivors are interested in neuroplasticity. And here was somebody in Brisbane studying that very concept. And neuroplasticity, as you said, it is kind of a fairly recent development, I suppose, in the, in the scheme of things. So why did people think the brain was fixed for so long? Well, I guess there just wasn't really any evidence initially. And a lot of the pioneering work done by uh, Ramoni Cajal just showed how intricate the brain was. And even though he described growth cones, it just seemed impossible that the brain could change its structure after you were born. And it wasn't until uh, the 1960s, the mid-1960s, that Altman and Das provided the first you know, evidence that, in fact, new cells were forming in the brain. And then Professor Bar- Perry Bartlett uh, was one of the first groups, along with another group, that simultaneously discovered that, in fact, new neurons were being produced in the brain, which is a pretty amazing concept, given that it had been believed for so long that the brain didn't change. Okay, so what else happens in, in neuroplasticity? Is it just about new brain cells or are there new pathways and transcripts in the brain? Yeah, lots of people think of neuroplasticity as rewiring the brain. That's the sort of the common terminology. Um, and so neuroplasticity can take on a lot of different forms. I study neurogenesis, which is the production of entirely new uh, nerve cells. But there's also um, growth of the axons and uh, new uh, uh, spine formation, which leads to the formation of new synapses. And the synapses are how um, brain cells talk to each other. And so you can have an increase in the number of synapses and you can also have an increase in the strength of the synapses. So synapses that once, you know, I've heard it described as they used to whisper to each other. Uh, The brain cells were whispering to each other. Now they're shouting to each other. So there's lots of different forms of neuroplasticity. Okay, so I understand your research is on on mice. What What are you finding from that? Okay, so what I'm finding is that, uh, first of all, I developed um, a specialised stroke model because I only wanted to look at the hippocampus. Uh, Other stroke models um, have uh, produced wide, you know, motor deficits and that makes it very difficult to test learning and memory. I've then found that if I treat the mice to improve the level of ongoing neurogenesis, so neurogenesis that's already occurring, I can change the levels of neurogenesis and the technique that we use is voluntary exercise. Those animals have an increased level in neurogenesis and a corresponding improvement in learning. Right. It sounds like you know, we still have a lot to learn about this, but there's, it's quite promising for those who've experienced some sort of brain injury. Oh, very promising. I mean, I'm very excited. I've dedicated my whole working life to this now, so I firmly believe that we're go- we'll, we'll, um, we'll be going places. How long that takes is anybody's guess. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, this has been very informative for me, I know it, I know at least. Um, that was Dr. Livinia Codd from the Queensland Brain Institute. Thank you. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English and many more options. Set up once and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen at enableme.org.au. Neuroplasticity means that the brain is able to make new connections to work around any brain cells that have been lost. But it doesn't necessarily do this automatically. If it did, we probably would have realized this much earlier. So how do you make your brain change and grow? 
To tell us this, we have on the line Dr. Michelle McDonnell, Senior Lecturer in Physiotherapy Rehabilitation at the University of South Australia. She's researching how neuroplasticity works after stroke and whether exercise can give it a boost. And in the studio, we have Karen Bailey. Karen is a stroke survivor and strong advocate for improved stroke treatment and the benefits that neuroplasticity can provide. She's also been part of the SENSE project at the Flora Institute in Melbourne, which is the study of the effectiveness of neurorehabilitation on sensation. Uh, now, everyone's experience of stroke is different, so I think that we should start with Karen today. Um, Karen, could you please tell us your stroke story? Hi, Chris. Yes, sure I can. I um, was born with a heart defect and I didn't know about it. And um, one night when I was 44, without any warning, I went to bed one night and everything was fine. And before I fell asleep, I had a massive stroke. I didn't know I'd had a massive stroke, but I was having trouble falling asleep and I didn't know why. Fortunately, I rolled over and fell out of bed and my partner turned on the lights and found me on the floor totally paralysed in one side of my body. Also, fortunately, I lived 10 minutes from a major public hospital that has a 24-hour specialist stroke team. So um, the ambulance came quickly. I got to hospital very quickly and they administered thrombolysis treatment, which is time-dependent. So um, this this was um, 2 a.m. and in the morning I was sitting up in bed in, in an acute stroke ward, still um, totally paralysed in one side of my body and having doctors coming to my bedside saying, you'll never walk again and you'll never return to work and you'll be in rehab for six months. And I didn't know what rehab hospitals were beyond, you know, the Betty Ford Clinic and the place Ben Cousin went. Um, you know, my, my familiarity was celebrities and drug rehabilitation. I didn't know what you'll be in rehab for six months actually meant. But it's worked out very well for you, I can see. Um, how, how did you, how have you recovered the movement in your arm and hand? Okay, so I was given a lot of therapy at an exceptionally good rehab hospital and that's not the case for all stroke survivors. Um, Within our public hospitals, they make decisions about if any or how much rehab is given to different patients. Because I was young myself and I had children who were two and three, they invested a lot of rehabilitation um, in me over a very long period of time. So whilst I I wasn't familiar with the the terminology of neuroplasticity when I arrived at a rehab hospital, certainly I had an awareness that whilst I was completely unable to move my left arm or hand, that there was nothing actually wrong Mm -hmm. with my arm and hand. I knew that that something was wrong with my brain and it, it didn't know how to move my arm and hand anymore. In fact, beyond that, it didn't actually even know that my arm and hand existed and I was catching my arm on things and whacking my head you know, with doors and yep. thinking, oh, what, what's, what's going on there? So I had um, no feeling at all, yep. no sense of hot and cold, no sense of sharp or blunt and no movement. People don't recover from stroke spontaneously and it's why we have physiotherapists yep. and occupational therapists and you know, I think we think um, people get better from things quickly. And when you're trying to build new co- connections in the brain, it happens incredibly slowly. It requires a lot of determination and a lot of patience by both the patient and the therapist um, over a sustained period. So, so for example, 
I, I spent six months in, in therapy doing things like my, my brain didn't actually understand that my shoulder and my elbow and my wrist and my fingers all moved independently to put my hand where it needed to be to do something. So, you know, I was starting to develop the, the, the thing you frequently see with stroke survivors where the shoulder goes up and over to get the hand where it is because, you know, the elbow and the wrist aren't engaging. So, you know, I quite literally spent six months doing things therapy every day doing things like holding a piece of tubing in my hand and sitting and willing my wrist to move up and down and then when I'd moved mastered up and down you know could I move it from side to side um so um incredibly laborious because my children were preschoolers at the time I sort of think you know children spend five years learning to, to walk and talk and gross motor skills and then fine motor skills and and it it requires that kind of intensity to relearn those things. Mm. Michelle, does Karen's experience sound typical to you of, of what stroke survivors go through with their rehabilitation? Well, yes. I mean, I think that when you said, how did Karen get better? And I'm just thinking to myself, Karen must have worked really, really hard because I agree with everything that she said that to relearn with a damaged nervous system does take a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of motivation so listening to Karen speak, I think that that is the situation for a lot of people. Probably need to say that there are some people whose motivation gets affected by the stroke because the stroke can affect your movement and it can affect your mm-hmm. feeling. But in some people, it affects their thinking and memory skills as well. And sometimes they're not quite the same person that they were and they, they may have mood disorders, they may suffer from depression, and they may not have that strong desire to work really hard and that's where rehab gets really challenging and trying to change someone's brain becomes really challenging if they're not as switched on as Karen was and as desperate to achieve what she needed to achieve because she had people depending on her. So there are, that's, that's the experience for some people after stroke as well. Okay, and imagine fatigue is also makes it difficult too. Absolutely. I tell people that your brain is working very hard to try and repair the damage so it's going to make you very, very tired. But we can't wait for that tiredness to go away because we know that the fatigue persists for a really long time because everything has to be done differently now forever. Your brain is now wired up a little bit differently. So it's not going to be as effortless as it was before um, in some instances. So I tell people that, yes, it is very tiring, but you have to keep going because because that may persist for a while. Um, and really the, the only thing that now is showing to be of benefit for the fatigue issue is just a bit more exercise, really. And more physical activity can help to, so that, that that fatigue is not so debilitating. Look, one of the big questions that, that we get asked or that a lot of people seem to ask is whether it's possible to continue to get recovery long term. So like in the months or the years after the stroke, what do you think of that question? Well, it's an emphatic yes. And in fact, there's been so, so much research done into new kind of kind of techniques that might help stroke rehabilitation. And the thinking was that if we try these new techniques on people years after their stroke then and if it shows a change when they're fairly stable then this technique has got to be the right thing to do so all sorts of things have been tried in people 
over six months, one year, ten years after their stroke. And almost universally, if people work hard at these particular... It doesn't matter what it is, actually. If they work hard at this new treatment, new exercise, new whatever it is, then they will, they will show improvement. Now, the key thing is that some people will improve more than others based on lots of different factors. But can anyone improve years after their stroke? It's an emphatic yes, but it is a lot of work. You will need to have the right sort of exercise, work at it at the right intensity and practice over and over again until you kind of master that skill. But, but yes. So people can absolutely improve years down the track. Karen, I believe you uh, agree with that statement. An emphatic yes from me too, Chris. <laughs> Um, so, so, so my experience was that I spent six months um, as an outpatient, inpatient, and outpatient of a rehabilitation hospital doing um, um, movement-based occupational physiotherapy. Uh, occupational physiotherapy, but one of the enduring impacts of my stroke was um, I. Um, I, I didn't know where my hand and arm were. My brain didn't know where they were unless I was looking at them. And I couldn't feel anything. It was like my hand was blind. I, I, I think of it like a blind person. Their eyes move, but they don't see anything. And my, my hand was the same. Um, so people were looking at me and seeing me moving my arm and hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they were a very little value to me in, in, in everyday tasks. A couple of people had mentioned um, Norman Doidge books, The Brain That Changes Itself to Me. You know, I wasn't quite up to that yet, um, but ultimately um, someone gave me a copy and I read it and it was just like, oh, wow, this is what I always knew. And there was one particular chapter in there um, from memory, maybe chapter three, and it was about his research um, on um, touch sensation with monkeys and it was before um, MRIs were so sophisticated and, and I thought wow um, you know 10 15 years ago they were doing these research this research in in monkeys I wonder where they're up to with humans and my physiotherapist um, at the rehab hospital had done her doctorate under a person called Dr. Leanne Carey who was researching um, exactly that retraining touch sensation after stroke I live 10 minutes from the Melbourne Brain Centre and I'm Googling this research and, um, you know, it's pioneering in the whole world and it's happening 10 minutes from my house. Um, and I, I'm a reasonably confident person. And so I emailed Leanne and said, hi, I'm Karen. I'm really interesting and you, you might like to look at my brain. And fortunately, she did. I'm really interested to hear about that. So this is the, the sense project that you were involved in at the, the floor now. What did they actually make you do to recover your sense? Okay, so... so um, it was primarily um, helping my brain understand feeling, so touching things in my left hand was what it was primarily about. Upfront MRIs to have a look at what was going on in my brain and then intensive block of um, rehabilitation three times a week over a six-week period, um, little plastic grids of mm-hmm. of different spacing and moving my finger over different grids and um, um, helping my my brain work out 
um, differences between um, the, the grids and also task-based training. So um, one of the things I wanted to be able to do was go out to a restaurant with friends and sit and eat with a knife and fork and for people not to be able to tell that I'd had a stroke. So um, when, when you hold a fork, it's not a static object in your hand. You, you, you're moving um, the fork in your hand and you're needing um, you know, fe- feedback about what's going on. So another thing I wanted to be able to do was do up a bra at the back so that I could go to the gym and put my bra on and nobody would know I'd had a stroke. Now, ultimately, I can do that um, on my own in a silent room if I've got 10 minutes, but not in a crowded gym. But So it was, it was task-based training, um, MRI scan partway through, mm-hmm. through the therapy, and then MRI at the end of the block of therapy, and then follow-up MRI six months later um, to, to see change in the brain. So what was happening for me is when they did that first MRI, you mentioned fatigue before, and I think fatigue is multidimensional. I think there's um, fatigue-like recovery from any injury where your brain is actually healing. But for me, what was happening is in an MRI machine, if they moved my finger over these little plastic grids to see what was happening in my brain when I was touching things, what was happening is my whole brain was lighting up. Um, um, Every neuro connection in my brain was engaging, looking for some information. And so what was happening for me is just trying to go through everyday life, looking after myself and two children and running a household, is, is my brain was absolutely exhausted because all of it was um, being used all of the time to the point that, you know, we, you, you might sit at work and, um, you know, work on a report and get to the end of it and think, oh, phew, I'm really tired and, you know, go and get a cup of tea and then you're fine. Well, I wasn't going and making a cup of tea mm-hmm. and fine. I, I, I was completely wiped out. Right. But ultimately, you then saw the the brain narrowing down to certain areas to um to, to be, as you developed through the the sense project. Yes, I mean something really quite remarkable happened both in my life, but also on the MRI images. That by the end of the six week block of therapy, when they repeated the same MRI scan and did the same um you know sen- sensory tasks, what had happened is just one tiny bit of my brain was engaging, and it was the the part right next to the site of my stroke, so right next to where sensation in my left hand used to exist in my brain, my, my, my brain had you know, found a new place to park it and it was right next to where it used to live. But you know, more importantly, in everyday life, firstly, not only did I have more information about what I was touching and so able to do things that I couldn't do before or do things um, faster or easier, um, I was a whole lot less fatigued because my brain wasn't working so hard. Well, Michelle, I guess that's uh, Karen's experience with the regaining sensation. What sort of exercises specifically work to encourage neuroplasticity in movement of things like arms and legs? Well, it depends a lot on what you want to do. And what we know about neuroplasticity is that it works best if it's something that's meaningful to you that you then have to work out. I think the trickiest bit is to work out the right sort of things to practice. They've got to be hard because if they're too easy, they're not going to be beneficial for you. And if they're too hard, then you're going to hate it and give up because Mm -hmm. it's too hard. So finding the right level of exercise, I think, is really the key thing. And once you've got an exercise that's difficult but not impossible, measuring it in some way and then practicing it over and over and over again and then measuring 
measuring it along the way to see an improvement. And once you see that you've improved in something that matters to you, then a whole new level of motivation kicks in and it becomes easier. And then you can keep progressing. Once you've achieved that little goal, then maybe someone can't hardly move their arm, for example, and then you put it on a towel on a table so there's less friction and they can slide it one centimetre twice and then after that put they can't do anything else so in that instance I would get someone to make a note okay so we've done one centimeter today you've done it two times and then if they keep trying and trying because I tell people that even if you don't see movement happening if you're trying to move that arm you're exercising your brain and there's been a number of different studies that show that imagining yourself move or attempting to move or even seeing yourself move sometimes in some of the mirror therapies, all of that is activating the majority of the same neurons in your brain as if you're actually moving. So trying to move, and again, it's up to the stroke survivor to work really hard here, trying to move is exercising your brain. And actually over time, it will start to move a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more and then you can kind of keep progressing and have little steps along the way to head towards the ultimate goal, which might be feeding yourself or, you know, using the cutlery or something like that. So lots of little baby steps along the way. And people really need someone to help them with that because um, you need someone from outside to watch and to measure and to help progress the exercises. So they're always at that appropriate level of difficulty. Karen mentioned Norman Deutsch's book, uh, The Brain That Changes in Itself, and in that he mentions constraint-induced therapy. Is that something that people can look out for or ask about? Well, now that's a tricky one. I've actually, so Edward Taub, the fellow who came up with that whole concept, I've met him. I went to his lab um, in the United States, and it was quite fascinating to watch it. He's not actually a therapist. He's a psychologist, and he did all these experiments with monkeys, you know, like restraining the arm of the monkey and making them retrieve banana-flavoured pellets um, for six hours a day. So when I went there, I looked at what they did, and I thought, how is this different to what we do in Australia? And a couple of things are different. People pay a lot of money to go Mm -hmm. there. There are some places in Australia that say that they are trained by Taub and that they do constraint-induced movement therapy. And and they're not necessarily therapists, again, and you pay a lot of money to go there. So that's one thing that's, that's very different. He insists that you live in on site, and so again, that's more money, um, and people have to do six hours of therapy a day. Now, that's very intense, but it's only for two weeks. So we kind of encourage people to, for example, if it's their arm that's affected, they're going specifically for constraint-induced movement therapy. If they have the required amount of hand movement, And that's a really important thing because you can't do this program if you have no movement in the arm. If you've got the required amount of lifting of your fingers and thumb and your wrist, then they'll put your um, less affected arm in a sling or a mitt or something so you can't use it for 90% of the waking day. So you ha- it forces you to use your weak arm. So it will be clumsy and you'll struggle and it will be frustrating. But actually that, that intense period of six hours of practice, measuring, recording everything, measuring everything, every single movement is scaled and measured and you know written down and everything, um, and then forcing you to use that arm for everyday activities. And the results are really very good like whether that's early after your stroke, more so in the later stages actually, that the results are really very good. Now we don't have a healthcare system anywhere in the world really other than paying for these people where we can accommodate that. So there are actually modified forms of constraint-induced movement therapy where you can go to an outpatient department three times a week, they'll set you up on the 
exercises that are at that right level of difficulty and they'll supervise and measure. And then you have to go away for two weeks at home and follow the rules. You know, you've got to wear the sling for 90% of the waking day and all that sort of stuff. So there there are ways that you can do constraint-induced movement therapy in Australia if you have a healthcare provider that's familiar with it and that can commit to seeing you those, you know, three times a week. It's usually done over a longer period of time, over maybe four or six weeks or so. So it's an option. It's not the only option. There are plenty of other things that we can recommend for people that have been shown to change the wiring in the brain, so to cause neuroplasticity, um, which may be more appropriate. And something that if we find the right um, treatment intervention that's meaningful to someone, that they feel the benefit from, that's going to be the most beneficial thing for them. So we have to tailor our interventions to the people involved. Um, I don't think that we have a way to to change the brain passively. Now, I, I have looked into this. Some of the research that I do was with brain stimulation. And when this first started being used in people with strokes, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the idea was that people could just sit in the chair with zap their brains and it will change them and they'll have this, will make it, will make neuroplasticity happen, which we can do in, with changing the stimulation of the brain. But actually what we discovered over time is that that was not meaningful to people. Sure, I can change the brain. I can make it more excitable or less excitable. I can do that easily. But does it actually change how someone can move their hand? No, it needs right. to be paired up with, with rehab. So I often get people asking me, can I have some brain stimulation, please, for neuroplasticity to fix my brain? Um, and, and the first answer is no, you can't because it's not approved for therapeutic reasons in Australia. It's only in experimental studies. And even in our experimental studies, when we've just done the brain stimulation on its own, that doesn't change anything meaningful. Yeah, a lot of, you hear a lot of people talking about uh, plateaus. They say they've plateaued. Um, that's something that they've been wondering too. Does this mean that their neuroplasticity has slowed down for them? Does it keep working even through a plateau, Michelle? I, I think... Um, so some of our work has shown if we do something to the brain, if I stimulate the brain, and, and we know that that's very similar to the, the neuroplasticity that we see in sort of animals, that we can see changes in the brain. Now, they're very variable. Everyone is different, and everyone will have different responses. So that's the most important thing to remember with neuroplasticity. Some people will only need to practice something 20 times, and they'll just get it. Other people will have to practice it 200 times. So there is a wide range of what's normal. When we test healthy young you know, university students in our experiments and I compare that with people who are older and people who've had a stroke, each group of people, it, the, the gains become slightly smaller. So unfortunately, as people get older, there's less capacity in the system for neuroplasticity. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It absolutely still happens, but to a lesser extent. And then once someone's had a stroke, they've actually lost a whole heap of the nerve cells in the brain that are important for neuroplasticity. So then it becomes harder again. So we, we all still have that potential for neuroplasticity until we die. We can still keep learning new things all the time. But in some people, it might just take a bit longer or a bit more effortful, or they may not get a full recovery or you know, they, they may not um, see the gains as quickly as someone else can. So that's, that's something that's worthwhile keeping in mind. Right. Karen, do you, what do you think? If someone is, um, if they, say, they're years after their stroke and they're only seeing small improvements, what advice would you have for them? I'd 
I, I think it all really actually comes down to what the goals of the individual person are. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal was always full recovery. There was never any question in my mind that that was the goal and it still is, but that's not everybody's goal. And I think that we actually just need to respect um, what is it that the person wants to achieve in their life. And, you know, one of the things that interests me is the motivation of relatives to make their sick loved one who's had a stroke better and um, you know pu- pushing people um, into recovery when actually they just want to be, be left alone mm-hmm. um, um, you know I think often we we talk about um, re- rehabilitation to an extent that somebody can move around in their own home independently and then of course Michelle talks about the benefits of physical exercise and fresh air um, so I really actually think it comes down to the individual I don't I don't believe there's plateaus I think you know if we're training for a marathon obviously we have rest days um, you know if we're rehabilitating from stroke we might have a a, a rest period to allow consolidation of the learning, but mm-hmm. in terms of capacity to um, have ongoing recovery, I don't think there's any such thing as a plateau, but it's about what's meaningful to each individual person. Okay. Would you agree with that, Michelle? Yeah, I was just about to say, oh, I wonder if I can interrupt. <laughs> say that, I, that plateau question, this has been discussed in the rehab literature. Everyone pretty much agrees now that the plateau is actually plateauing off of the therapy services and so then the therapy becomes less intense and that's why people don't necessarily see changes and and they may not they may have little changes but it's not measured because they're not being followed up and observed so we're really keen for people to be regularly reviewed years after their stroke because there is no reason why people can't continue to improve i don't believe that there is this plateau that you're never going to get any better. I don't I don't believe in that at all. People can absolutely still get better. It's just a matter of practicing the right things in order to see improvement in the things that matter to the individual. Great. Well, that's um, that sounds like a great message. Well, I want to thank you both for, for talking to us. Thanks, Chris. Nice talking to you, Michelle. Oh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Karen. That was Dr. Michelle McDonald and Karen Bailey. Setting goals is crucial to stroke recovery. Goals can be as simple as walking to the letterbox to check the mail or bigger goals like getting back to work. Enable Me has a unique tool where you and your carer or family can plan what you want to achieve, track how you are progressing and celebrate your successes. You can also connect with other people who set goals similar to yours and challenge or inspire each other. You can even set up a blog to write down how you are feeling and share your own story. And don't forget, our professionals from Stroke Client can help with personalized and confidential advice to help you grow stronger after stroke. Visit enableme.org.au. As we've heard so far, neuroplasticity is something that you can use to continue your brain's recovery even long after a stroke. Now, for some practical advice on how you can get the most out of it, we have Simone Russell, an occupational therapist and one of the health professionals that you can talk to on the National Stroke Foundation's Stroke Line. You can also find her answering questions online at enableme.org.au. Welcome to the podcast, Simone. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Now, we've heard that if people want to access their brain's powers of neuroplasticity, it's good to have a health professional who understands it and can help them. But where do people start with finding someone like that? Yeah, look, it's a common question that we get through Stroke Line. You know, how do I find someone who practices? 
practices, neuroplasticity. Uh, I would expect all uh, health professionals going through training and keeping up uh, continuing professional development to be aware of this term now. So if they're accessing a health professional who has experience in stroke or neurology, then they are in the right place. There's a number of different ways they can access uh, health professionals through either their hospital or rehab centre, through local community rehab centres. But they can also access private therapists through the uh, registration bodies for each um, health professionals they can access. The other way that uh, stroke survivors can access private therapists is through the professional bodies such as Physiotherapy Australia, Occupational Therapy Australia, Speech Pathology Australia, etc. So there's a range of different ways they can access appropriate okay. health professionals. On Enable Me website, we have links to those directories and those associations. People can look up there if they want to get some of that information. Absolutely. And if people are confused, they can always call Strokeline as well and we can direct them in the right way. Now, we've heard a lot about this, this idea of having to continue these things uh, for recovery long term. It is a lot of work to put in, obviously. Um, so it sounds like it's not necessarily for everyone and people's results will vary from it. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the frustrations many stroke survivors have that, you know, they put in the work and they find themselves uh, quite exhausted by putting in the work and perhaps sometimes not feeling that they're making the gains that they would like. It is a really fine balance, I think, between quality of life, um, also acceptance, but also that um, that hope that comes with this concept of neuroplasticity that mm. the brain can change itself. So it's really up to the individual to to. F- to see what's best for them, I think it's difficult if your whole life is basically all around rehab. You know, if your whole life is made up of going to rehab sessions day in, day out, you do need a quality of life as well and to do the things you enjoy. Yeah, but the, the I guess the point is to remember that the, the gains can be made, even if they are very small gains, there still is that potential there. Absolutely. What would be your top tips then for stroke survivors who are wanting to access neuroplasticity? Yeah, sure. So my top tips, if I was to select five of them, the first one would be to select meaningful activities. So participate in meaningful activities um, when uh, undergoing rehabilitation. So you're more likely to be motivated. They're more likely to be stimulating for you as well. Uh, The second tip would be, I say, the just right challenge. So really neuroplasticity is about targeting the rehab or the activity at uh, a level that is challenging enough to tap into that process of neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain, but not too easy. So usually having a therapist there is highly recommended because Mm -hmm. they can give you feedback and cues and prompts to adjust the the difficulty of the challenge. But over time, stroke survivors can become quite good at recognising if something's too challenging or too easy. If it becomes too difficult, what you see is fatigue and then the quality of the movement or the quality of the task decreases. If it's too easy, then you're not uh, challenging that process enough to tap into neuroplasticity. The second, uh, sorry, third um, point I would make would be if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. So I think Lavinia might have touched on this as well. And it's around, you know, sitting there and not doing anything is only going to lead to deterioration. So you do want to make sure you're using what you've got and building right. on it consistently. The fourth um, one that I would say is practice, practice, practice. So practice makes perfect. It's no different than learning to ride a bike, learning to walk as a child. You know, the more we do something, the better the better at it we get okay. um, and the more we can build on. So repetition is really a key, t- a key um, concept or key principle of neuroplasticity. And the last one would be to set meaningful goals. So having that sort of vision of where you want to get to is really important, not only for motivation, but also for really measuring along the way your progress and to keep you motivated. And we 
have a fantastic section on Enable Me where you can set your own goals and we also offer uh, assistance with setting goals. So you can call Strokeline and speak to myself or my colleague Elena to help come up with goals, to come up with the action steps and also to have a little bit of a brainstorm about what some of the challenges might be that you come across with goal setting and there's a great um, a function on Enable Me too that will help you to prompt you to remind you to uh, uh, review how you're going with those goals and to give you some yeah. feedback along the way which is fantastic. And I guess uh, the wonderful thing too about Enable Me is that you can share your goals with the rest of the community and get support from, from other people as well. Yeah absolutely and I think it's really helpful for other stroke survivors to see what other goals are out there to give them ideas but to also you know support and encourage other other stroke survivors on their journey. Fantastic thank you very much that was Simone Russell from Stroke Line and that's all we have time for on today's podcast. Next month we'll be talking about something that I'm sure is on everybody's mind the understandable worries about the chance of a second stroke. We'll look at how to handle those concerns and what you can do to reduce your risk. At Allergan, we know every stroke is different and so is every recovery. After stroke, many people have muscle weakness and loss of movement, but you might also be experiencing tight muscles or stiffness in your arms, fingers or legs. It's called spasticity. You might have muscle spasms or uncontrollable jerky movements in your arms or legs, changes in your posture or unusual limb positions, and it can cause pain. It can be treated though. Physiotherapy or occupational therapy can help you adapt and improve your movement. There are other possibilities too, such as injections with botulinum toxin type A, electrical stimulation of the muscles, electromyograph or EMG biofeedback and muscle relaxing medication. What is important is to start your rehabilitation as soon as possible after a stroke and to discuss your goals and progress with your rehabilitation team at every stage. Allegan is proud to bring you this Enable Me podcast. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at our website, enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. We also have health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your health professional. If you would like to suggest a topic or provide feedback, contact us via the website enableme.org.au. The music in this podcast is Signs by stroke survivor Antonio Ianella and his band, The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio's studio, which you can find out more about at www.studio499. That's F-O-U-R-99.org.au. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the National Stroke Foundation in Australia with the support of Allegan.